If you had seen this guy, Roger we'll call him, the last time he was admitted to the VA hospital, you would have sworn that he was a World War II vet, not a Vietnam vet. But he had served two tours in the infantry in Vietnam, been injured twice, nothing serious. He did uh, have a much more serious injury in a car accident about 10 years after he returned home. But it didn't slow him down. He worked for the same company for uh, almost 30 years uh, and uh, performed in an exemplary fashion. Everybody liked the guy. But he had a problem, and that problem was cigarettes. He could not put the things down. The VA wasn't a great place to try to stop smoking, seeing as pretty much everybody there, including the, the staff, uh, smoked. But uh, this guy had the hardest time with it. Even when he started to get pain in his legs and was told that the pain in his legs was from, from hardening of the arteries and poor blood flow to his feet, he still couldn't stop smoking. Even after he was put on several additional medicines, which he didn't take very well, he still wasn't able to quit. When he had his first arteriogram, uh, which interestingly showed his left leg to be fairly decent shape, considering uh, the right one was uh, pretty far gone. He had three operations, if you if you count the revision of the, the second graft that he had. Uh, none of them lasted very long and the results were never very impressive. He still continued to have the most awful pain, not just when he walked anymore, but also when he was resting with his feet up. He still had almost continuous pain and he also continued to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day. So the last time he came in was the last time he would come in. And it was because the pain and the ulcer on his foot uh, had worn him down. He, uh, he just didn't feel like he could go on doing this for too much longer. And I think he had already given himself over to the fact that he was going to need to have that leg removed or suffer with the, the pain until it became gangrenous and then have it removed. So uh, he came in as uh, a, an elective hospital admission with a plan that he would go to the operating room and have the offending limb removed. And he did have a limb removed the next day. It just happened to not be the correct one. It was the healthy leg that was removed. The other leg, the bad leg, had to be removed about a week later. And after that, he developed some problems with his heart and a serious infection in his bloodstream. And despite very aggressive therapy, he died approximately uh, 14 days after his second surgery. It was a medical error. It was a medical error that falls in the category today 
of wrong site surgery, a category that also includes operating on the wrong patient, operating on the wrong part of the right patient, doing the wrong operation on the right patient. These all fall in the category of wrong site surgery. But you would be forgiven for believing that wrong site surgery is a thing of the past. That's a, a rare occurrence back when record keeping and uh, communications in the hospital were less than optimal. But with today's technology and experience and the infrastructure in modern hospitals, that clearly is not something that still occurs. But if you believe that, you would be sadly mistaken. Medical errors are a huge problem in healthcare in the United States today. It has been estimated that medical errors cost the country approximately $20 billion a year. Approximately 100,000 Americans die every year as a result of preventable medical errors. And that's in hospitals. In fact, the Joint Commission, which is a body charged with overseeing uh, the performance of hospitals uh, throughout the country, their most recent estimate is that approximately 400,000 hospital patients every year experience some type of preventable harm. And the harm doesn't just happen in the operating room, it can happen in the x-ray department, it can happen when devices malfunction or the latest greatest healthcare technology breaks, systems fail, patients fall or get infections. And all of these potentially preventable events. But what is truly the most alarming thing about this is as we learn more and as reporting improves, a subject I'm going to talk about at some length in a moment, the numbers appear to be getting worse rather than better. Medical errors are increasing despite our knowledge and efforts at prevention. But before we can grapple with the really tough questions about what is going on and what are we doing wrong, we really need to understand the full scope of the problem. And right out of the gate, we're faced with problems of definitions. We should be alarmed that the key agencies nationally responsible for looking into this issue and coming up with solutions can't even decide on the definition for medical error. The Quality Interagency Coordination Task Force, which is a federal agency for healthcare research and quality, describes a medical error as a failure of a planned action to be completed as intended or the use of a wrong plan to achieve an aim. Errors can include problems in practice, products, procedures, and systems. Well, if that's the best way to describe what a medical error is, then maybe we shouldn't be so shocked that they're still going on at the rate that they are. A medical error is a preventable adverse effect experienced by patients receiving medical care. 
I think we can all agree on that. Some of the most common problems that occur today include adverse drug events, possibly from allergies or mixing of incompatible drugs, burns from equipment or flammable materials in the operating room, equipment failure, failure to provide preoperative antibiotics, for example, falls, blood transfusion reactions, the failure to get a diagnosis or to get a diagnosis too late, uh, the failure to utilize the correct test, or even worse, the failure to follow up on a test, to do something with a positive blood test. Patient identities get mistaken. Poor care on the floor can result in pressure ulcers and uh, clots forming in the veins in the legs, which can be lethal. Preventable suicides and the morbid list of potentially deadly events goes on with the asphyxiation or strangulation of patients who are put in restraints. Injuries that occur in the operating room, possibly from equipment, also from patients being dropped during transfer from the gurney to the operating table. There are so many classes of error that occur in the administration of medications both inpatient and outpatient, giving the wrong dose to the wrong patient or to the wrong site, and any number of other complications related to the administration of medication. And bringing up the end of this abbreviated list is wrong site surgery. But even these numbers remain shockingly high. There are 4,000 surgical errors that occur every year in the United States. Operating on the wrong part of the body is one of the most common sources of surgical error. And this category of surgical problems brings up uh, another interesting and very worrying concern is that when new technology is introduced, such as robotic surgery, not only do the rates of surgical errors fail to drop, but with every new technology that is introduced, we're introducing a whole new set of potential errors into the system. It turns out that a lot of surgical mistakes actually have their origin outside of the operating room, either before the procedure is done or after the patient leaves the operating room, and none of them are surprising, with causes of errors including things like uh, the lack of adequate training for the surgeon, uh, the lack of ongoing surgical education for the person doing the operation, the absence of any standardized rules and regulations in how patients are managed before and after surgery, and anybody who has spent five minutes in an operating room will understand that a major source of error is terrible communication that you so often see between surgeons and anesthesiologists and the nurses in the room and anybody else involved in the operation. Communication is almost always one of the first things to go in a high-pressure situation or environment. Another place that communication predictably breaks down is between the surgeon and the patient. But probably one of the biggest factors in surgical error is the rush and the pressure. 
both from the hospital to complete more cases, to do so in less time, to speed up the turnover between cases in an operating room. There is nothing but pressure to move faster, to produce more. And that is exactly the kind of setting in which mistakes are most prone to happen. And you see it in other areas of the hospital, the intensive care unit, the emergency department especially. Whenever there is a pressure uh, to move at a speed that is outside your own personal comfort zone, you are more likely to make rush judgments, poor judgments, and virtually any other type of error. Let's take a closer look at one particular kind of surgical error, the kind that we opened by discussing, the wrong site surgery. This is not a new problem. It has been recognized for decades, and more than 10 years ago, uh, the Joint Commission, the body that oversees hospital operations, uh, and safety and quality, were concerned enough about this problem and the fact that it did not appear to be getting any less prevalent that they put together a set of recommendations, more than recommendations, strict guidelines that member hospitals needed to follow to reduce the incidence of wrong site surgery. And they were very practical very straightforward and uh, really quite simple. They involved marking the surgical site whenever possible. Of course, in some cases, if you're operate, operating on an eyeball or a, a kidney, you can't mark the actual organ, but you can certainly mark the side. Uh, but the process of marking with a permanent marker on the patient's skin, the site of the operation, and the second step was to have what's known as a timeout in the operating room. A timeout in the operating room is where the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and a representative of the nursing team, usually the circulating nurse, the head nurse in that operating room, will stop what they're doing before the surgeon makes his incision. And they will confirm that they have the right patient who is getting ready to undergo the correct operation on the correct side or the correct organ and everybody has to affirmatively agree uh, that those facts are accurate and correct before the operation proceeds. Now you would think that surely to goodness that would essentially stop in its tracks any brewing error but it hasn't. It, it has made some difference, but it by no means has eradicated the problem. So what is going on that we're still dealing with wrong site surgery today? Well, there are a, a number of factors that need to be addressed and need to be addressed uh, more completely and aggressively than they have been so far. Oftentimes, the attitude of the operating surgeon gets in the way of this process. A lot of surgeons don't like to be told what to do and will actually look down their noses at processes like the timeout, 
thinking that it's childish and unnecessary and they're responsible, they know what's going on, and resent the fact that their decision to operate on this patient's right leg is being questioned by anybody else in the operating room. And this kind of attitude can lead to an operating room where the subordinate staff are literally afraid to speak up and demand a timeout at the beginning of the case. If the surgeon uh, is of such a personality that he does have no intention of, of following these silly time-wasting rules, oftentimes the, the rest of the operating room feels like they, they simply have no option but to play along. Uh, it's, uh, it's very disconcerting, it's very real, and it's still going on today. So besides having a surgeon who's an egomaniac and a bully, what other factors can lead to, to errors like this in the operating room? Well, one thing that's received a fair amount of interest of late is distraction of key operating room members by their electronic personal devices, cell phones and what have you. And believe it or not, that is, that is still a problem in many, many hospitals. I know that some have banned the use of personal electronic devices in the operating room for this very reason. But I also know that many, many others have not. Oftentimes, a surgeon who's in a hurry may rely on his memory for the results of an x-ray, for example. And that is a recipe for disaster when, because of inadequate planning or lack of staffing, an x-ray is not available for the surgeon to review in the operating room that he'll go on his memory of that x-ray. And that right there is one key source of, of tragic errors like wrong site surgery, which is uh, incidentally most common with orthopedic surgeons. An event that occurs with disturbing frequency is when a member of the operating team, usually the anesthetist or the anesthesiologist or possibly the surgeon, will order a preoperative test, uh, an EKG, a chest x-ray or some lab work. But in the hustle and bustle and uh, yielding to the pressure to move quickly and not waste time, these results might not yet be available or the x-rays may not have made it to the operating room or through lack of decent communication, the surgeon might not even know that the anesthesiologist ordered the test. But either way, the pressure to proceed in the operating room is intense and the operation begins before the the results are available only to discover that the uh, the EKG shows an arrhythmia that would have made the surgeon or the anesthesiologist cancel the case. Other issues that just add to the confusion and add to the error-prone nature of the high-pressure environment of the operating room include when you have multiple surgeons operating on the same patient for some complex procedure or if you have inadequate staff. It doesn't take more than losing a single staff member from the operating team before the entire routine gets thrown into disarray trying to make up for that one person's absence. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that the problem we have is huge and it is not getting appreciably better. 
what is not working and why is it not working and what can we do about it? Finding answers to these questions should be something that is important to every single one of you listening to this podcast. The odds are pretty good that at any given moment in time, you or somebody that you know or a member of your family is going to have an encounter with a healthcare provider in the immediate future, whether that's in the hospital, an outpatient clinic, a surgery center, or in the doctor's office. And mistakes can happen in all of those places, and they do happen in all of those places. So the answers to these questions, why is what we're doing not working, and what do we need to do about it, should be of immediate interest to all of you. Clearly, there are some important parts of this puzzle that are still missing. See if you agree with me on on one very important thought. In order for us to fix any broken system, we need to first understand the system, then we need to understand the failure points within that system. And to understand where a system is breaking down and where errors are coming from, we need to have all the data. And I believe that this is where the real problem lies. I find it virtually incomprehensible that in 2019, we still don't have mandatory reporting of medical errors. Yes, you heard that right. The reporting of errors is still largely a voluntary process that happens with some hospitals and with very few other entities, offices, outpatient clinics, outpatient surgery centers. There is no system in place to make it mandatory to provide the data that will allow us to find what is broken in this system. And the resistance to providing the data, while being completely understandable, is also completely unsupportable. Physicians are very reluctant to report errors because they fear for their jobs, they fear for their licenses, they fear for, for their hard-earned reputations. There are many, many reasons that physicians will avoid reporting. And it is this very culture of failing to report that sets the stage for medical error to continue unchecked. Modern-day healthcare lives in a baked-in culture of guilt and blame and recrimination. There's no doubt about it. But it's also clear as day that assigning blame is going to be the least effective way to bring about any kind of meaningful change in healthcare. The culture is broken. And as long as we have a society where the prime motivator for our physicians is to avoid blame and all of the negative impacts that come with that blame, we are never going to get the information that we need 
in order for us as a society to finally get a handle on what the underlying forces are, what is actually sustaining the ridiculously high medical error rate that we're seeing in this country. Most of the physicians that I know are motivated by a powerful and sincere desire to see their patients do well and to see them and their families thrive. That's why they went into the business. But they're also now motivated by a fear, a rational and genuine fear that any shortcomings on their part could mean the end of a career or the, the end of a practice. And these are, these are powerful negative forces that are really standing in the way of us ever getting a handle on the medical error rates. Let me be absolutely clear about one thing. I am not laying the medical error situation solely at the feet of our physicians and surgeons, not by a long way. Hospitals, surgery centers, device manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies all have their share of responsibility for identifying and correcting the sources of errors throughout the system. But I believe that physicians have a unique responsibility and a unique opportunity to step up and set an example by working to change this destructive culture from within and by looking for new and innovative ways uh, to address the problem of medical error. And the first thing that they need to do is argue loudly and forcibly to the people who make the decisions that the reporting of medical errors, no matter who is responsible or in what setting the error happens, but that reporting needs to be mandatory. I believe when brave physicians with strong character stand up and speak out for mandatory reporting, not just for physicians, but for the organizations, the institutions, the people and the companies that support their mission, then and only then we'll be able to harness the kind of information that we have to have in order to get to the root causes of medical error in this country. But I also believe that if physicians stand up and show the way on this, and when we start to see actual improvements with significant reductions in the number of deaths and maimings that happen as a result of medical error, and it has been done through the determination, the commitment, and the hard work of physicians, I think we will see that culture of blame shift radically. But on the other hand, if our physicians can't pull this off, and if we can't change this culture, then medical errors are going to continue to be denied, minimized, driven underground, and voluntary reporting will continue to work as well as it is now. Medical errors will continue to destroy the lives of the very patients the physicians are caring for. Yeah, it's, it's, a bleak, it's a bleak future, 
without some radical grassroots attempt to right this ship. And while it may seem abstract and somebody else's problem, I promise you it won't seem that way when it is your child or your parent who experiences a life-changing medical error. So what can we do as concerned citizens and potential victims of a medical error? As outsiders from the medical system, there's probably not a great deal that we can accomplish directly. But for those of you with the constitutional fortitude uh, who have a relationship with your physician that would support the conversation, it might be worth bringing the subject up in conversation and maybe helping them understand the scope of the problem. Just don't be too surprised when he or she tells you that complications are generally things that happen in other practices and that they don't make errors. Boy, do I hear that a lot. There's only one other practical idea that uh, I think may have value, and that concerns your voting power as a citizen. I think it would be worthwhile to find out what your representatives believe when it comes to the issues surrounding medical error. Uh, many will be ignorant of it as an issue, but many won't. And this has absolutely nothing to do with party or politics. This simply has to do with finding individuals who can represent your interests, who believe that uh, medical errors pose a genuine existential threat to you and your family, and is interested in working towards a solution, and then you just go vote for them. Well, that's all I have on this subject. I would be very interested to hear your comments or feedback. And just in case this topic wasn't distressing enough, you may rest assured that this was just the beginning. And it is my intention to present you with far more disturbing and worrying ways in which our ignorance may be putting ourselves and our families at risk Next week, we'll be covering what you absolutely need to know about nuclear waste on this continent. And the week after that, we're going to be looking at the actual real-life impact of a global financial crisis. That'll keep you up at night. Please leave a comment or a suggestion. Or, if you feel up to the challenge, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you again in a week. Until then, good night.